how do you wrap up a study about heaven? How do you tie together all of the pieces that we've been looking at over the last eight uh, sessions? All the things that we've seen in God's Word about His plan to make everything new in Jesus Christ, to reconcile all the things in earth with the things in heaven, to redeem everything about His original design for mankind and creation that was corrupted because of our sin. While I was pondering that very question, I happened to listen to a sermon that looked like it was on a completely unrelated topic. It was a sermon I mentioned this morning by the great Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson called Christian Service, Slavery or Sonship. I highly, highly recommend that you take the time to listen to that sermon. You can get to it on sermonaudio.com. Look for Dr. Sinclair Ferguson and search by popularity, and you'll find it's the top, it's the most listened to message that he has done, and he's done a lot of great ones. It's uh, it's long, it's 65 minutes long, which should make you guys appreciate me more. <laughs> but I promise it's worth every second. Dr. Ferguson said something in that message that just leaped out at me and decisively settled the question for me about how to conclude this series. He put his finger on the one thing on which all of God's redemptive work depends. The one thing that makes all of God's amazing promises to us in Jesus Christ an absolute certainty. And that one simple reality is that the snake lied about God. When you understand the nature of the lie in the garden and how it persists today in every man, you come to understand just how life-changing the truth about God actually is. The truth of all that God has promised and of all that God gives to us here and now. The first words that the serpent in the garden spoke to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 were these. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And this was a clever, calculated, brilliantly subtle denial of the amazing abundance and freedom that God had given to Adam and Eve. What God had actually said to Adam was from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The wording in the first part of that verse is emphatic. God told Adam in effect, look at all these wonderful trees. They're all beautiful to the eyes. And they're all wonderful for food. You can have as much of that food as you want. You can eat and eat and you won't even get fat. They didn't even know what fat was, of course. There's just one tree. Just one from which you may not eat. The snake, directly targeting Eve rather than Adam so that he could simultaneously mess with God's design for headship, said to Eve, now hold on here. 
you mean that God won't let you eat anything from this garden that you want to eat? What an unkind, unloving, freedom-limiting thing for God to do. You see how great a disparity there is with just a few word changes between a declaration of beautiful freedom and abundance and a declaration of poverty, of freedom. At first, it looks like Eve attempted to correct the snake, but you don't have to look very hard at her response to see that her heart really wasn't in it. (laughs) She was already circling the drain. She said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Do you notice that she left out the word freely? She left out the word any. And then she said, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Had God said anything about not touching the tree? No. See, legalism crept in while the world's first sin was still in gestation. And Eve's phrase, lest you die, pales by comparison with God's actual warning. In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. By the way, there were two trees in the middle of the garden. Did you notice that Eve forgot one and focused on the other? There was the tree of life and the tree of death. The tree of death is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, there's a whole lot lost in the first translation of God's words. A grateful awareness of all that God had so graciously and abundantly provided had already gotten pushed aside and the focus had already turned to what God had withheld, not to what God had provided. Seeing the half-hearted pushback that he got from Eve, the snake at this point threw out all subtlety and just came right out and called God a liar. Not just a liar. An unkind, ungracious, unloving liar. The snake told Eve, in effect, that the thing that God was withholding from her and from her husband was the single most desirable thing in the whole garden. Not only, he said, will it surely not kill you the way God said it would, but there is nothing else in this whole place that will bless you like that one tree. That fruit, Satan said, has an amazing side benefit. When you eat it, you get to be like God. Instead of knowing only about good and pleasant things, you'll get to know about evil things. You know, all the exciting stuff? What could be better than that? What good is it, Eve, to be made in the image of God if you don't even get to know the things that God knows? The thing you need the most, the thing you want the most, in this whole garden is right there on that tree. Let me hoist you up there so you can get that low-hanging fruit. The words of the snake to Eve on that day constitute what Sinclair Ferguson calls Satan's character assassination of God. It is the same great, powerful lie that 
has assaulted the sensibilities of every man, woman, and child born since that day. The essence of the lie is simply that you cannot trust God with your well-being. And there are three parts to the lie. You can't trust God with your well-being because God is a liar. His Word is not true. You cannot trust God with your well-being because God withholds good things from you. And you cannot trust God with your well-being because the good things that He withholds from you are the best things. God might give you some good stuff, but it's the stuff He doesn't give to you that shows you what He's really like. How can you trust a God like that? Now, there's certainly no shortage of preaching and writing to address the first of those three parts of the snake's lie. The Word of God is not true. And I would, I'm not going to go into that point this morning because uh, there are many opportunities for you to, to, to hear about that one, including Wednesday night, Ben, ben Pegues' current class on the Scriptures, and, uh, which is also available, audio is available on the website if you haven't gotten it. And just a quick aside, the website is fixed, thanks to Debbie Dula. There's no more looping at five minutes back to the beginning. Okay, you you stream it, you get the whole message. So, uh, and it's been there's a new phase, uh, the whole new phase for the website. Go look at it. Now, the truth of God's word is the fundamental of fundamentals. I'm not diminishing it at all. But the trouble is that many people, possibly some people in this room, who say they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, still don't believe that they can entrust their well-being to God. They don't put much faith in His promises in the day-to-day experiences of life because they really don't trust God's intentions toward them. If you don't believe that someone has good intentions toward you, you don't pay all that much attention to what they have to say. Beloved, the most important thing that you will ever know about the promise of heaven is also the most important thing you will ever come to understand about your life here and now. And that is that the snake lied about God. The truth about God's intentions that was evident in abundance in the garden and that is demonstrated in perfection in Jesus Christ is this. God delights in lavishing good upon His children. And whatever God withholds from His children, He withholds precisely because He delights in lavishing good upon His children. Following Dr. Ferguson's lead, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna plagiarize his message, but I'm, I'm going pretty heavily with his outline. I want to consider two well-known parables of our Lord in which Jesus proclaims that worldview-changing truth about our God. And that truth buries Satan's pernicious lie in the dust so we can get on with living lives that are filled with clarity and joy and power and usefulness. In Luke 15, Luke records one of the most famous parables of Jesus, popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son. If you don't have your Bibles, 
Just listen, because it's a story. He said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So, the father divided his wealth between him and his older brother. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed his swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. But no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have plenty to eat? They have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fattened calf and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. And he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet, you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I want to look hard at the lie about God that's exposed in that story and about the truth of God that it clearly declares. The younger son did not trust his father's good intentions. In effect, his thinking went something like this. 
if I leave this inheritance thing up to my father, I'm going to get shortchanged. I'll have to wait way too long to get what's coming to me. Think about what I could do with it now. I need it now. I need the freedom to spend it the way I want to now. My father has no real commitment to the things I really need. I'm not sure he even knows what they are. So I need to take control of my well-being. That son demanded his share of his father's estate. He struck out to live large and to answer to nobody but himself. Once he finally got to reap the consequences of his foolishness and found himself starving to death while the pigs he was tending to had plenty to eat, he came to his senses. He repented and he resolved to come back to his father. But he still misjudged the heart and intentions of his father. He assumed that the best he could hope for from his father would be to work for him as one of his hired hands. The older son took a dramatically different approach in his relationship with his father. But he believed the same lie about his father's character and intentions toward him. See, he did not really believe that his father had his well-being at heart. He didn't really believe that he could leave such things up to his father's judgment. He lived in a manner that would obligate his dad to do good to him. He did everything in his power to structure out the possibility that he would be shortchanged. So when his brother returned and his father threw a feast in his honor, the older brother's whole world view came crashing down. He said to his father, in effect, all my service to you has been nothing more than bondage. And it's done me no good. You have withheld from me the good that I deserved, the good that I earned. And you have unjustly lavished good on this pathetic excuse for a brother. Clearly, you can't be trusted with my well-being. This is what Sinclair Ferguson calls the elder son syndrome, except he says it with a great Scottish brogue, something like the elder son syndrome. Our distrust of God's character, our denial that God loves to be gracious to us makes our experience of sonship now no better than slavery. The older son in the parable said to his father, look, I have slaved for you all these years. That's what those words mean. I have acted as I've served as a slave in your household for all of these years. And look what it's gotten me. I've never once been treated the way you're treating my brother who never did anything for you. How could I ever have trusted you? The father's response to each of his sons reveals the real truth about our heavenly father. Instead of disowning his younger son, who clearly deserved to be disowned, his father was watching for him. He saw him approaching the house while he was still a long distance away. His father ran to him. He embraced him. He kissed him. He put his best robe on him. He put a ring on his finger which signified that son's sonship, his membership in that family. 
And then he called for a feast, a feast for a son. This is a vivid picture of a father who delights in lavishing his love on his child even when his child clearly does not deserve it. There will be no hired hands subsistence for any son of this father. He will have a feast for his son and he will have the inheritance of his son. The father's response to his older son proves the same marvelous truth about our heavenly father. He says to the older son, My child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother, this brother of yours, was dead and has begun to live and he was lost and has been found. See, this is a father who delights in bestowing gracious abundance on his child. All that I have is yours. You will lose nothing because I have been gracious to your brother. Not only do you have a son's inheritance, you have a brother restored. I need to mention at this point a critically important principle for understanding the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that principle is that until you recognize that those parables are talking about God and us, there are many things about them that won't make sense. Just for one example, if you look at the parable of the the unforgiving chief steward in Matthew 18, you see that there's this, this household servant who's over all the other servants and he owes to his master a debt worth many millions of dollars. Now, there was no conceivable way in that culture in that day that a chief steward could have come into that kind of debt. But when you realize that the parable, that in the parable, the master is God and the chief steward is you, then that debt makes perfect sense. Because it is a picture of your and my infinite debt to God because of our sin, which has violated his holy character. And that the, the infinite nature of that debt tells us that any debt, any finite debt that any man might ever owe to us so pales by comparison that we have no, no possible course of action except to forgive it because God has forgiven our debt. See, you have to understand who the parable's talking about or the parable makes no sense. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father's declaration to his two sons only makes sense when you recognize that the father in the story is God and the sons are you and I. Otherwise, how could the father receive the younger son back into the position of son and heir without the older son losing some of his inheritance? The younger son had spent all of his inheritance, so from whose inheritance was the feast coming? Out of whose inheritance would the younger son be able to enter back into the position of son and heir? Out of the older son's inheritance. But when you recognize that it's talking about God and us, it makes perfect sense. Because such limitations do not apply when we're talking about our Heavenly Father and His children. See, it's not a zero-sum game. 
God doesn't have some limited pool of wealth and blessing that He has to carefully divide between each of His children. My inheritance doesn't diminish yours. Because that inheritance for both of us, beloved, that inheritance for both of us is God. How many of you have ever crossed the Mississippi River? The big bridge. Saying that my inheritance in Christ puts a limit on yours is like saying that if both of us get our water from that river, one of us is getting shortchanged. Our God is a mighty river of gracious love overflowing its banks all the time. There is no end and there is no limit to what God has to give to us as His children. How much of what belongs to the Father belongs to the Son? God the Son. All of it. And how much of what belongs to the Son of God belongs to those who are joint heirs with the Son of God? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All of it. Our Heavenly Father says to you just as He says to me, My child, all that I have is yours. All of it. Our loving and gracious Father delights to lavishly give good things to His children. And the very heart of all the good that we receive from Him is the glorious inheritance of eternal relationship with Him. Together, together, with the whole family of sons and daughters of God brought into true union and communion with Him and with one another by Christ and in Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the hope that anchors our souls against the storm-tossed waves of this life. And that's what every blessing that we enjoy here and now is all about. That relationship together with Him. The promise of our glorification, the promise of our resurrection, the promise of freedom from sin and the curse of sin, the promise of life together in the new Jerusalem with God right in our midst, all of those at their very core consist of the promise of eternal sonship as sons of the perfect Father who loves to give good things to His children. That's the truth about our God. The snake lied. In another parable that's well known called the parable of the talents, in Matthew 25, God sets the same beautiful truth before us about Himself. In that parable, the Master is about to leave for a long journey. He gives money to each of His three slaves to invest while he's gone. After a long time, the master returns and he summons the three slaves so he can settle accounts with them. Two of the slaves have invested very well, each receiving a return of 100% on the money originally given to him by their master. To each of those two faithful slaves, the master says the exact same words. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
enter into the joy of your Master. Have you ever had an employer say that when he gives you your paycheck? Good job. Here's your check for the month. Now enter into my joy. That would shake you up, wouldn't it? He said that. That's what God said to these two faithful slaves. The third slave took a very different approach, and that approach was based on a radically different assessment of the character and intentions of the master. When the master handed him the money to invest, he took it, he dug a hole, and he buried it in the ground. And when the master came back much later, he dug it back up and he handed it to the master. And he explained it something like this. He said, I knew that you were a harsh taskmaster. I knew that whatever I did with that money that you gave me would do no good for me because you are all about yourself. I knew that if I went to the trouble to invest that money and made a nice profit, you'd just happily take it all back away from me for yourself. Even though it would be I who had created the profit. You're not a just master. You're not a trustworthy master. So I figured, why bother? Now, beloved, was that true? No. The master's dealings with the other two slaves proved that it was not true. They proved his character. They proved his intentions. That faithless slave had bought into the same lie about our Heavenly Father that the snake told Eve in the garden. The first lie ever told to a human being. That you cannot really trust your master with your well-being. He likes to withhold good things from you. And even what he gives to you is always suspect because the the only one he really cares about is himself. How many people who call themselves Christian do you know who think of God as a capricious, entirely self-serving being who can't be trusted with their well-being? If you think that's not rampant in the church, think again. The conclusion of that mindset is you have to take care of yourself. You have to protect yourself. You have to lay up treasure here for yourself. Or you will be destitute. You will be unloved. You will be uncared for. Because God cannot be trusted. But the truth that Jesus Christ declared in both of those parables and many others, the truth that God proved perfectly through the death of His own beloved Son in your place is this. God delights in lavishing upon His children all that belongs to Him. He says, enter into the joy of your Master. And in that in that, that phrase, I take the word of, the joy of your Master, every way it can possibly be taken. Enter into the joy that belongs to your Master. Enter into the joy that comes from your Master. Enter into the joy that is your Master. Here's a very important question that's absolutely critical to understanding God's true intentions toward us and His dealings with us right now. When did the two good servants get to enter into that joy? Was it when their master first gave them the assignment to invest the money? No. That's not when he said that to them. 
the process by which God brings us into the fullness of His joy is a painful process made more painful because the blessing that's promised is deferred. It demands of us a long obedience in the same direction. Satan tells us that that deferral is intolerable. It is ungracious, unloving, unkind. It should never be expected of us. He tells us that that delay and all the pain that comes in this life in the midst of that delay causes great harm to us. And it proves that God really doesn't get the whole issue of our well-being. But the truth about God is exactly the opposite. It is exactly, exactly the opposite. The struggle of waiting, along with all the pain that we experience in this life in the midst of that waiting, is not a withholding of good. It is a multiplication of good. It is an immeasurable increase of good. Investment with the deferral of blessing means greater blessing in the end. You cannot have the full measure of blessing later if you demand to put your hands on it now. Just ask any farmer or any banker. But the truth about our God is even better than that. Because all of the sufferings and tribulation that we experience this side of our glorification day produce blessing for us even now. And the very essence of that blessing is a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ and deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a participation in the sufferings of Christ so that we may participate in the glory of Christ as His joint heirs. Did Jesus get His glory before He died or after He died? He entered into the fullness of His glory after He suffered and bore our sins and died an ignoble, humiliating death forsaken by His Father. You and I don't have to do that. All we have to do is wait and trust and obey. Hebrews 12.6 says, For whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. That's not the promise we're looking for. But it is a beautiful and marvelous promise. Verse 10 of Hebrews 12 says, Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for good that we may share His holiness. Verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems to be not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained for it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you want to share God's holiness? Do you want the peaceful fruit of righteousness? You have to have both to dwell in His presence forever, by the way. The truth about our God is that He withholds no good thing from us. Even when we feel like the things that He's withholding are indispensable to well-being. Things like comfort, good health, deliverance from heart-wrenching conflicts with people that we care deeply about. 
even when those are the things that he withholds, he withholds them precisely because of the same lavish love that he demonstrated when he took the life of his own beloved son in your place on the cross. If he did not withhold those things, then he would be ungracious and unloving. See, God loves us far too much to let us make anyone or anything other than Him the source of our well-being. So when we do so, He frustrates our efforts. He takes things away from us because He doesn't want us to be satisfied with a mirage. If a man dying of thirst in a desert is stumbling with every fiber of his being toward the mirage of water, and you know where the oasis is, the most gracious thing that you can do for him is turn him away from his obsessive pursuit and point him toward the true water of life. That's why God does not let us hold tightly to imitations of the true source of well-being. And they are many. He recently sidelined one dear brother in our body for months with a disabling illness just at a time when his company seemed most to need his expertise and experience, but much more painfully, just at a time when he and his dear wife had had their first child. Another young wife in our body learned just this week that she has cancer. Several in our body have already been through long, painful struggles with cancer and other illnesses. And some of them are no longer with us because God did not deliver them from those illnesses while they were here in their mortal bodies. Some parents face daily the pain of knowing that their beloved child whom they faithfully raised in the knowledge of God and of God's Word has turned his back on Christ. And they know the pain of realizing how powerless they are to turn the heart of that child back. If you believe the snakes lie about God, experiences like that will cripple you. They will drive you to despair. You'll say, why would God let such a thing happen? He's supposed to be all-loving and all-powerful. So where was He when I when I made the life-smothering decision to marry this man that I'm stuck with now? Where was he when this, these cancer cells first started attacking my body? Where is he now? You might say, it looks to me like he either has no real interest in my well-being or worse, like he enjoys withholding well-being from me. How do you know that that's not the truth about God? You know it because God already proved that it's a lie. Everything that He has ever declared about Himself and everything that He has done in all of His dealings with His people ever since He took the first life ever taken on this earth to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, all of it proclaims His love for His covenant people. But there is one proof that eclipses all the others. And that proof was the death of Jesus Christ in your place. 
God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were helpless, lost, and dead in our transgressions, He sent His Son to die in our place. The snake lied about God. The more pervasively you know the truth about God Himself, the more convinced you will become that all that He does toward you as His child is good and gracious. All of it. You will radically reinterpret the things that the world sees as desirable and undesirable. Because you have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. You will know that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you'll be ready for whatever comes. Do you believe that that God the Father loves His Son, Jesus Christ? Do you know that the measure of His love for His own Son is the measure of His love for us? That's what Jesus said in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. That they may know that You sent Me and that You loved them even, even as You loved Me. Did God the Father let His Son suffer? Did that suffering and that grievous injustice and that horrible death demonstrate that God did not love His Son? Not according to His Son, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. when we recognize that the snake's lie is what it is, when we know and believe the truth about our God that obliterates that terrible lie, a thousand things become infinitely clearer. There are many things even about our own sinful tendencies that become clearer. Things like the fact that every one of us tends toward both legalism and licentiousness. Did you know that every one of us is both of the sons in the prodigal son story? Legalism is the dependence on... Let me put it this way. Legalism is a steadfast dependence on rule-keeping and licentiousness is a steadfast rejection of rules. And the lie that says that God does not take care of us drives us to either and both of those. And every single one of us alternates at some point in life between one and the other. We are not always legalists. We are not always licentious. We're both from one situation to the next. Why? Because they both proceed from the same distrust of God. And you know what the, you know what the, the solution, the, the reality to those two issues is? It, it, it's amazing. It makes the lies and the truth, when you compare the lies and the truth, look like it's like saying that the way to have a winning baseball team is to have a good defensive front line. It's the wrong game. Steadfast rule keeping does not give you well being. Steadfast rejection of rules does not give you well being. You know what gives you well being? The steadfast covenant love of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other source of well-being for any of us. That's it. Why are we playing the wrong game? 
skipping a little bit because I'm running late, but let me say this. In Christ, we discover a law of love that so perfectly and completely fulfills every other legitimate law that it makes all our law lists obsolete. In Christ, we discover such lavish provision for every true need and for every truly desirable thing that we lose our appetite for self-indulgence because we've already found the source of everything that is truly satisfying. The snake lied about God. We who belong to Jesus Christ know that, that He lied. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. And for us who have experienced what it's like to stand in the marvelous light of that incomparable love, any time that we find ourselves once again foolishly stumbling around in the utter darkness of what we can do for ourselves, we are drawn right back to that light. We can't stay there in the darkness. We're reminded again and again that there is no contest when it comes to the source of well-being. We will struggle against the pull of this world. We will struggle against the flesh and the devil because we're still waiting for the last part of God's saving work, the redemption of the body and blessed freedom from every residue of sin and of the curse. We're still waiting for those resurrection bodies that are untainted by either sin or the curse. We still sin, but we know that our sin is insanity. We hold ever more loosely to the sin and we hold ever more tightly to our Savior. We increasingly distrust ourselves because we know who is actually worthy of all of our trust, and it's not us. The more acquainted that you become with God's true intentions toward you and toward us as His covenant children, the more you will embrace His terms and His timing for everything that happens to you. Even when it looks and feels like you're getting shortchanged. Even when we know full well that forgiving someone will make us more vulnerable to pain. We still forgive. Even when it becomes apparent that following Christ and proclaiming Christ will result in persecution. The loss of a friendship. The loss of a job. The loss of our freedom. The loss of our head we will still follow and proclaim Him because we know, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that you are that loved? We know that all the waiting and all the tribulations of this life are themselves a gracious provision that increases our treasure in eternity and that causes us to know Christ more fully right now. So we don't run from those things. Like an older single woman 
at a young woman's wedding, we rejoice in the kindness that God shows to our brothers and sisters even when we don't get to have what they have just yet. Because we will have it. We know that the water that our Savior and Master gives to us becomes a well of water springing up to eternal life. We know that whoever drinks of that water will never thirst again. So forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And nothing, nothing can stop us from that pursuit. Our hope is not a wish, beloved. It is a rock-solid certainty precisely because the truth about our God is that He loves to love. We will share in the Son's feast. We will share in the Son's inheritance. We will share in the Son's joy. And we will do so forever. Dear Father, we confess that every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We praise You because Your promises to us now and in eternity are as certain as Your character. Jesus already proved it. It's all we need to know to be overcomers in this life. We praise Your name now and we know that we will praise Your name forever because we will stand in Your glorious city in Your glorious presence. The objects of Your eternal and steadfast love forever. And we know that all of this is because of the great name of our Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray.